it's become something of a, uh, if we can turn that up a little bit, it's been something of a cliche in the political arena to talk about a new day that is dawning. We heard it uh, this week in our president's address, uh, barring that phrase, of course, from uh, our previous president, Reagan, and I think it's been used throughout our history, and no, I could care less about the political context today, uh, but it's, it's, a, it's that phrase that we see actually in the scripture, a phrase that anticipates a great day of opportunity. You can turn it up a little bit more. And so uh, it, it, it raises the question, do you see yourself as living in a great moment of opportunity? And I mean, of course, not for yourself and some selfish ambition or worldly ambition or vocational vo vo uh, ambition, all that, that, that might be good with that. But no, I mean, as a Christian, do you see this day as a day of great opportunity? It's true, we have seen, if we've been, been present here in the last couple of sermons as we're working through Matthew's Gospel, and we've had this sort of three-part mini-series on the Kingdom of God. It's true that, that, uh, that the way in which the coming of the Kingdom of God is framed around this verse 17, where Christ is shown the first act of his ministry was to proclaim that as his intent. He began to preach, repent, for the Kingdom of God has come, or the Kingdom of Heaven has come, or is coming. But uh, it's all contextualized within a day of great trial. A, a day of great testing, a, a, a day, and I mean day figuratively, as in an era, a time, a period of time when, when ushering into the kingdom of God necessarily meant the ushering into a great collision course of lordships. The lordship of the God of God, the king of kings, the creator of all creators, into a world that has been defined ever since the fall by the very sin of Babel predicated upon the sin of Adam and Eve, a sin wherein we craft, we imagine, we begin to form other lords and other creators of our own making. And we believe in this great humanistic adventure that we, the people, we have great power and knowledge and wisdom. We can build that kingdom utopia. And yet we've seen how such an adventure, such an endeavor has the opposite effect and it brings upon us a great curse because we have, you see, severed ourselves from the creator himself, the, the power and the wisdom that alone can bring about this utopian world that we long and we even know in our gut we were made for, those made in the glorious image of God. In comes the kingdom of God. Do you believe it's a day of great opportunity in spite of the great collision course that you're destined to if you were to come out of the closet? If you were to be bold and believe that you are living in a day, an unprecedented day in the age of redemptive history of opportunity, if you really believe that, yes, it will surprise you to discover that it's it's by putting to death a lot of worldly things. It's putting to death a lot of our babels, or a lot of our bales, putting to death things in our life. It will bring a great collisions course. But in the irony of this kingdom, 
as we in our self-sufficiency decrease, we are proclaiming, we are hearing that even as Christ himself took upon himself our decrease, how it is out of our suffering, out of our trial, out of our exileship relative to this world will emerge a great day of opportunity. And I'm just not making this up. This isn't not me just coming up with a, a little political, Christian political speech. It's, why do I believe this? Because this is the storyline. This is the narrative that is so deeply ingrained in Scripture, you can't miss it in any redemptive era of Scripture. That we must decrease in order that we might increase. That we must suffer in order that might we be glorified. That, and it follows the pattern of Christ, of course. His own suffering, his own decrease but out of which comes the authenticity, the purity of the kingdom of God. Repent. Turn away from those lords that are in collision with the kingdom of God. Repent, said Jesus. And herein we have the other side of that statement. If it began with a great time, a testing, and, we, and a testing that is anticipated for all those who are following Christ, if you're authentic, that is, then it's capped with a, on the other side with a day of great opportunity, for we see in this passage how it was after he proclaimed this, that he went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And the, in this, listen to this, and the fame spread like a fire throughout Syria. How so? How is it? What is this call? Is this about you and your calling? Should we take this passage too quickly right out of its context and, and, make, and insert ourselves in the place of the disciples and say, oh, you are fishers of men. I. Now here's my answer. You've gotten kind of used to it when you really are faithful to the scripture, but it's no. Yes. That's your answer. Now I'm going to show you that right now, right out of the scripture. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would instill in us the sense of optimism. An optimism that does not negate the suffering and the trial and the testing, but the optimism that the coming of the kingdom of God is at hand. Dynamically breaking in collision courses, yes, but yes, Lord, we are the called ones called to build upon those who were called before us, the apostles and their foundation, not our own. And the apostles who were called by Christ immediately and personally 2,000 years ago to build Christ's church upon him, the cornerstone of that great foundation that they would lay, that we are now to build on. Help us, Lord, help us to find courage in an age of meekness and timidity. Help us, Lord, to be bold with the opportunity that is at our doorstep with every neighbor and every friend and every colleague. We pray, come, Lord Jesus, do more than just teach us some theology. Teach us life in the kingdom. 
Well, again, this is a sermon that must remember what we've learned so far. In other words, you could ask the question, how is it that this is an age of great opportunity for Christians and the gospel? Well, the answer given here is a bit, again, ironic. But it begins with this remembrance of the first sermon. It begins with the idea that we are talking not about the kingdom of humanity. We are talking about the kingdom whose source is from heaven, as Matthew wants to accentuate. That holy abode where Christ is seated in the thrones, ascended Lord. The source is the ascension ministry of Christ reigning in heaven. It's not going to be a kingdom that's built by our human wisdom and our human creativity and our organizational prowess. It's a kingdom that will be built by the power and the wisdom that's not of this world. It's of heaven. It's not of us. It's of God. It's a different kind of kingdom, a kingdom not of this world. And that's our first confidence. Yes, if you were to ask yourself, is this a day of opportunity after 2,000 years of humanistic history? I'd say, man, when are we going to learn? Wars seem to get longer, not shorter. Suffering seems to be more intense, not less. When will we learn? When will we wake up that our Babel institutions just don't make it to heaven? When we humble ourselves, that is to repent of self-sufficiency and acknowledge first and foremost, well, as it's the very core of who you are as a Christian, that I don't depend on myself for this kingdom. God. It's a theocentric kingdom. Another source, another lordship. Second, though, we remember that into this world comes another king. A king not of this world. And therefore, the necessary collision course with every Christian, with every movement that's Christian. Into a world is the kingdom of God destined for collision. We see that in the trial of Christ. And then, of course, the subsequent trial of John the Baptist. And then, of course, taking off from the history of redemptive history in the Bible, the trial of the apostles in Acts. Every one but one beheaded for their faith. Every single one but one killed at a younger age than me to be because of that collision course. The church was built not upon the success stories of Christians in worldly terms. Sorry. That's a false myth. Oh, if I could just be successful in the world, I'll have a great witness of Christ. The church won't fit on that. Last night, I was going to say it later, but we had such a wonderful time here. Kudos to the 2030s for putting on an amazing event where we invited our city to come and talk about Christ and his presence and his work through our work, how do we rethink work in light of our being Christians? I was so encouraged by what I heard by the panelists. Such a wonderful complimentary uh, presentation, I must say. But it began with the testimony of our own, well, person here. And um, I was so delighted that it was not the testimony of ascendancy in the world, it was the testimony of descent. It was a testimony of a man that reached the, the highest peaks 
of worldly power and prestige and money and how that came into collision with his faith when asked to do things according to the wisdom of this world that was contrary to the wisdom of God which resulted in the descent. I was so delighted to hear him share that the result of this collision course was not Oh, but God made me wealthy somehow else. He made it worthwhile in worldly terms. Oh, praise God. I didn't hear that boring story. I heard a man share how he then began to live a life of greater strength and witness and has been used ever since for the kingdom of God. And yes, God has taken care of him. I heard another story of how when we talked about it, it was framed, our work was framed in the context of our understanding of creation, fall, and redemption. And oh, it was so beautiful to hear that narrative, that story that was just so refreshing. It wasn't a bunch of best practices Christian style that I hear so much written in the books today on Christian vocation. Reframing our lives and, and our understanding of where we fit in God's place within a redemptive context. And then, of course, the third was a testimony on the rediscovery of her, of her identity. It was just beautiful, the way those three came together. Why am I saying this? Because we have so often relied on a false premise that the kingdom of God, if it were to come, is going to look worldly. And it doesn't, ever, never did. The church was not built on the success stories of Christians, if you mean by that, of course, prestige, power, privilege, all that, though that can come and go. That's immaterial either way. But built on a willingness for Christians to pass the test. The test of what is Lord in my life. Who is Lord? Am I willing to come out of my closet and be bold and say, there is but one Lord in my life? It's one of the things that John says in 1 John. He says, you know, you could really sum this whole thing down to this simply, simple three, I think it's three-word sentence. This is what John did. Go look it up in 1 John. You can boil it all down, he says. Here's the confession. Jesus is Lord. Boom. Period. That's it. We've seen how that's true in that second sermon. And today, now, we come to this great moment. But that, it's that. Don't lose these first two things. A kingdom not of this world, but of God. Another source, another power. It's that. A kingdom that comes not through the methods of this world or the success of this world, but for the boldness and the willingness to pass the test. The test of suffering, collision, of course. Coming out, repenting. For that story, it ends with great optimism. I really have just completed my sermon. I would be just this close to going downstairs right now with you and say, let's just talk about it. But I'm not going to do that. Let's look at this because there's something here we need to hear. So first of all, what happens next? We hear this great call. This amazing, unique call of the apostles. Notice, I'm going to point out three things about our text here. First of all, 
the calling of the apostles as a unique call. It's very interesting here how we see this. In other words, this unique call of the apostles, and he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their jobs. Is that what we're all supposed to do when we become Christians? And they left their jobs, nets, and followed him. While from common context, nothing about their genealogy is mentioned here, nothing about their family background, nothing about their social status, nothing about their training. It is truly wanting to focus on this call that is just starts with common people on the streets. And yet, don't confuse that with it being a common call. The common context, of course, of these are two sets of brothers who are both fishing. First pair of brothers is Simon and is called Peter later, and Andrew his brother. Second pair of brothers is James, son of Zebedee, and his brother is John. And yet their common vocations are specially chosen, we discover. It's as if God chose them for their vocation in the manner which it was going to be transformed metaphorically into a vocation of similar type but different focus. Because his call was that they would now become fishers of men or people. The work you see Christ was calling them to is here illustrated as a totally different focused call. Same emphasis in other Gospels, interestingly. Luke records, though, wants to make sure the extraordinariness of this call is linked to a special extraordinary miracle as related to the fishing miracle. You may know it where he says, cast your nets into the seas, and they had been fishing and had nothing, and then there was a great, miraculous catch to illustrate the optimism. Thus, neither were from the established Jewish leadership. But yet, it raises the question, how then did these people, untrained, you would think, boy, have people taken this one out in our nice, populous, democratic world out of its context. But, so, oh, there it is, right? You don't need to go to seminary. You don't need to have training. You don't need to do Really? We might want to put this into the context of their three-year seminary course with Jesus Christ and look at the literature that they wrote, which was extraordinary. I would put Peter, the, the brass fisherman, up against hardly any preacher in the world today in terms of his knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures and the way in which he amazingly weaved that knowledge into his writings and his ministry. Matthew, John, incredible. We know, for instance, that they had that time and season as well. Throughout every course, you see this behind-the-scenes training, instruction, teaching. It was a unique call with a unique professor, to be sure, Jesus Christ. Only upon the initiative of Christ, though, notice that it, it's Christ that takes the initiative. He saw the two brothers, places the initiative upon Christ. It's interesting that John's account wants to emphasize this as well, where Jesus says, you didn't choose me, talking to the apostles, I chose you. A unique call. Luke's account 
makes sure we understand the context that it was at this time that the, he went off to the mountain to pray and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also named apostles. It was a big event, not a casual, I'm walking down the sea. Oh, you seem like some nice young men. I think I'm going to call you to be my disciples. This was a very unique call, as we'll see throughout the course of Matthew's gospel. And he said, follow me. These words, literally, if you were to look at it in the Greek, it's just come, get behind me. Come, get back here. You want to know what a disciple is? Following Christ. Getting behind Christ probably is even better. Letting him take the lead. I'm walking in his steps. It sets up what we're going to see later. How it is the apostles is to build something. But only as a foundation built upon Christ as the cornerstone, according to Ephesians. Notice in verse 21, the language of call is actually used. And he called them, James and John. This language of call, literal meaning it's to address someone, to name them out. It's to assign something to them. It's to uh, appoint them as, again, from the initiative of God. Sometimes it's a call to salvation, to be sure. And you might be tempted to read this passage that way. We don't know the state of these disciples prior to meeting Jesus, but every indication is they were, they were familiar with John and perhaps had already professed faith in Christ. We don't know for sure, but that's not the point. Here, of course, it's that second kind of specific call to a specific duty or office. Hebrews, for instance, uses the same word, and one does not presume to take the honor, but takes it only when called by God, just as Aaron was, speaking of the priestly office. And on it goes, Galatians. God, when, but when God, who had set me apart before I was born and called me through his grace so that I might proclaim him to the Gentiles, Paul here is acknowledging that his apostleship was predetermined by God, and he was called out to do so. This is not a conversion story. It's a vocational calling story, predicated upon the belief that there's something, there's a door, there's a window opening up. The kingdom of God is coming. An age of great opportunity has come. Notice it was a call to leave common grace vocation. This is extraordinary. It says immediately they left the nets and followed him. In other words, it took precedent over everything. Clearly, this is not just a general call to be disciples or a gospel call, but not even now is it a general call to Christians to ministry. You know, the kind of ministries we do all have, we'll see. We are called to ministries. Every one of us in this room are called as ministers of the gospel in our various ways, serving in the church. But that's not what this is about. This is a unique kind of call. I'm obviously making a case for a reason. It's interesting here that Zebedee is not called. Elsewhere, Jesus invites all who will come to him when, he, when the issue is of faith, belief, or general Christian service. But Zebedee is not called. He's not one of them in this unique sense. So what's the significance of that first point? No, don't let anyone tell you. There is no such thing 
as an apostleship today. You might use the word in a different sense. The word does have a Greek meaning, and it's, you know, but no, there is no apostle today on earth. No apostleship. There's no continuing setting up this foundation work that the apostles were uniquely called to do. There's no continuing revelation today as if thus saith the Lord from the mouth of a human being. None. None. All hermeneutic theories, all methods of reading scripture, all intimations or intuitions, none of those can be put onto this level of status of revelatory. None. The foundation has been laid. The organizational foundation, the teaching and theological foundation, all done and finished. It's interesting, though, how then if we think about what is happening here, what was the result of this call? Of course, we see them immediately going out in the name of Christ doing these amazing, miraculous signs as to signify that the kingdom of God has come. They had special powers. But at the end of the day, if you read through the story, even as anticipated by Jesus when he spoke and gave them the commission. You remember the commission, don't you? Well, it starts in chapter 16. Upon this rock, Peter, and his confession of Christ as the Lord... He says, I will build my church. It was always intentional. It was never accidental that the gospel, the kingdom of God, was to be focused on the building of a church. Churches become the epicenter of the kingdom of God. And you go through the book of Acts. Even the Great Commission. Go make disciples of all nations now. A call. By what? Baptizing them? What's that? That's engrafting into an organizational community. Bringing them into a community, teaching them. And then there's a governing aspect, to obey. The prophetic, priestly, kingly vocations of Christ acting in, with, and through this now church built upon the foundation with Christ as the cornerstone. It's interesting. Indeed, Luke's summary of the apostles' ministry throughout Acts, that is right after the ascension, when they were set loose in their calling that began this day here, accounted by Matthew, to be fishers of men, women, children. Yes, I mean that holistically. Luke's summary for all this work was that, quote, then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. Very clearly, Acts tells a story beginning in chapter 1 of the importance of building a temple church in order for the kingdom of God to come. Again, let me just read the passage I've been alluding to. For in their words, the apostles' words, Paul would say that his mission was related to the building on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ himself being the cornerstone. 2 Timothy 2.2, and what you have heard from me, Paul says, as an apostle, 
in the presence of many witnesses, now entrust the faithful ones who will be able to teach others also. What we find here is a succession plan. The apostles build that, the, the, the foundation, but there is a succession plan that that would continue. What we saw in Acts three times in each of the three major sections of Acts, it is summarized what was accomplished by all this work, and churches were planted in so many ways. Every time, there's three summaries of three parts in Acts. And here they all focus you on this. In succession to the apostles' character and lives. In succession to the apostles' teachings. As part of an exemplary life and confessional knowledge. Listen to the way that the next generation, post-apostolic generation, like Timothy. We already see this begin. Timothy was not an apostle. He had no authority to build a foundation through revelatory words. And so the language that I just read to you from Paul replies to Timothy. You don't teach your own revelation-based work that I've been doing in Christ. You teach what I've taught. And so in 1 Timothy 4, keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save yourself and your hearers. 2 Timothy 3, you, however, have followed my teachings, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. If I were to say that to you, you would go, bro, who do you think you are? <laughs> Paul was an apostle, hand-selected by Jesus Christ. That's who he was. That's why there was such a great fight in the early church of all these self-appointed apostles who Jesus hadn't personally, by his own initiative, chosen. And personally... Disciple. Remember, Jesus discipled Paul for three years before he started his ministry, it says in Galatians. That's amazing. The disciples, three years of seminary training by Jesus himself before they went into Acts. It's amazing. These were not self-appointed people. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity and dignity. And he goes on. And so everything the church does is the result. Everything the church does that is carefully built on the foundation of the apostles is the result of what happened in Matthew chapter 4. You've got to see all that. That makes the church the missionary of God. And therefore, every ministry of the church is participating in this call of Christ, first given to the disciples. A unique call, my first point, and my second point, a call now distributed uniquely in, with, and through the church, of which you and me, every member, and there are varieties of gifts. There's a variety of ministries we've been learning in our Sunday school. Instead of that word gift, we kind of misunderstand it. Everyone has a ministry. Everyone is a, quote, minister. No, there are a variety of ministries. It doesn't mean everyone is a preacher. Everyone's an elder. Everyone's a deacon. Everyone's a giver, whatever. Everyone's a minister. If you mean by that, as in, and their importance is relative, not individualized. Their importance is relative to their work in, with, and through the church of Jesus Christ. 
pillar and bulwark of the faith, built upon the foundations of the apostles with Christ as the cornerstone. Paul, John emphasizes this in John 20, 21. Send you, refers to the apostles, send you the church that the apostles planned. Send you the church that church planted by apostles planted. You see what's going on here? Just as the Father sent me, so I send you, says John 20, 21. Who? The apostles. They get sent. And what do the apostles do? They send us. How do they do that? Well, you see it particularly choreographed through the laying on of hands in the context of those particular offices that are in succession to the apostolic office without the foundation building authority. Pastors, elders, etc. It's the laying on of hands to demonstrate that this has got to be, and the purpose, by the way, the laying on of hands. It is certainly a spiritual anointing that's going on, but it's one that's authorized to the degree that a person is found to be apostolic. And what I mean by that? Someone who is judged in character and judged in teaching to be built upon the foundation of the apostles that they might then succeed the apostles. So we do believe in apostolic succession of offices, but not in the unique sense of a foundation level office, but in a succession level office. Now these are distinctions, guys. I know them. You look like, this guy's going nuts. All this organization speak. Guys, this, just go read your history. You can go all the way back to Didache in the 100 AC, I think it is, right there, John, somewhere 100 something AC, and there it is, polity. Descriptions, an organizational, carefully choreographed organizational description of what the church in the second and third century is supposed to look like. All built upon the foundation of the apostles. And off the arguments go. Yes, there's been some divergences here and there. But it's amazing how the world, church history, we love to often, again, it's somewhat democratized, we love to talk about church history in terms of church movements. And yeah, there are, I mean, movements, I shouldn't say church. But that's what I'd want to add is, but look at them closely. They are church movements. Now, why am I saying that? Because, see, this power is the basis given under the church. When Jesus said to these same men, just a couple of chapters later, you could say, I don't know when that was, probably is a good you know, year or two later. But when Jesus said to them, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Notice what's going on here. Because he goes on to talk about how there will be a binding and a loosing of the kingdom of God breaking into the world through this church. This is not the church here defined in a timid sense, is it? The church isn't over here hovering and scared and not going to be careful, I might screw it all up, kind of a thing. This church has been given the power of Christ, his own validation, and, and by the Holy Spirit, a power. In succession, carefully choreographed on the foundation of the apostles. How many times have I said that in a sermon? About a hundred. You're getting tired of it yet? I am. But it's so needed to be said now. I mean, intentional. Not just best practices Christianity building a church. I mean, going back to the scriptures and saying, what was the organizational plan? What was the teaching? What was expected of an elder? Et cetera, et cetera. Most importantly, what is the gospel? 
I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This is not the picture of a fortress church hovering over in a corner, feeling off the, the darts of the devil. This is, the picture who's on, this is a picture of a church that's on the move, that's aggressive, that's active, that's proactive, that's bold, that's, that's looking for that collision, not in a belligerent sense of looking for it. No, no, no. In a gracious, humble, gentle, loving, confident, bold, way of engaging our church, our world. It's not the picture of a church cowering in a fortress, protecting itself against the church, the world. It's rather a church that is missionary, that's going into the world, according to our Great Commission, and going there with a purpose, because this is an age of great for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your community, that's what it is. The keys of the kingdom of heaven, according to Matthew 16, has been given unto the church. I put a great quote up there by Leslie Newbigin, who really discovered this in his writings. He says this about this church. I have come to feel that the primary reality of which we have to take account in speaking for a Christian impact on public life is a Christian congregation itself. How is it possible that the gospel should be credible, that people should come to believe that the power which has the last word in human affairs is represented by a man hanging on a cross? How can anyone believe all that stuff, he's saying? Our answer is this. The only hermeneutic that is interpretive lens through which they're going to say, yes, that's true, of the gospel is a congregation of men and women who believe it and who proactively live by it. He goes on to say, there are many other things that pe people do. Talks about other movements, other things, and he goes and picks up, but I am saying that these are all secondary and that they have power to accomplish their purpose only as they are rooted and lead back to the church, the believing community. The significance here is clear. You, you, how, how do we define the church? We define it, as I've said, as it's carefully defined by the apostolic foundation built upon Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. Who is the constituent of it? What is the church? What does it constitute? Who fills it? Who, who, what is it? Well, at the end of the day, it's us, the body of Christ. And in Romans, for as one body, we have many members, and not all members have the same, this word means ministry or task or function. We all have functions, but not the same ones, he says. What is that going to say? So therefore, use them, he goes on to say. You're not participating in kingdom building if you're not participating in, with, through, and I use all those words because they're different nuances that can explain, in, with, and through the body of Christ, who's alone and exclusively been given the power of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Do you believe that? Now, the way this church does this is amazing. It does it in its formal activities such like this. It does it in its what we call several activities and things like we did last night. 
You know, if you were there and you brought a friend from the community, perhaps that wasn't a believer, it was a packed house, it was exciting, but you could double it next time. But if you were there and you brought a friend, I bet you weren't embarrassed. But I bet they heard a bit of a collision. It was exhilarating. There's power. Normal, cool, nice people directing away from themselves but to Christ. It wasn't testimonies of self-fulfillment and self-actualization and self, self, self. It was a testimony of Christ. And yet, by those who were very much in the world, living it out. Not perfectly. If you were there and you didn't bring someone, I bet you were thinking, I should have brought. Well, that's because the church is uniquely situated to be the hermeneutic of the gospel, in the words of Leslie Newman. Every member, every member that made that happen last night was participating in the missionary activities of Christ through the church, every single one. Chairs were set up, food was brought, and seeing was done, this was done, this was done, Ivy, you know, film, whatever. All evangelistic. Every bit of it. That's how important you are. Because every member counts to make this body politic, this city of God, this politic of Christ's kingdom, not this politic of this world. Every member counts. We've been learning a lot about that in our Sunday school. But let me bring this to a close. This is a great opportunity, an age of opportunity. There needs to be great boldness. The light shines in darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. I have said these things to you, that in the, the you, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. And on and on it goes. Boldness. Boldness. Boldness is what is required. Amen. This is a table that is given on to all who have put their hope and faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, who have joined themselves, being engrafted into the body politic that we know as the church. If that's not you, we're glad you're here. You're supposed to be here. Smell it. Listen. Let it rouse in you a curiosity. Pray, God, if you are God, reveal these things to me. We're glad you're here. There's some prayers in the bulletin. So the Lord took the bread and he broke it, and having given thanks, he gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. It was given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, the Lord took the cup and he gave it to his disciples and he said, This cup is the new covenant, my blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink ye all of it. And so let us come, present ourselves, cleaning ourselves into Christ's care.
both for the assurance of our salvation, as reminded by this holy meal of the unique sacrifice for us, but also as an invitation to be called, to lay it all down, to take up our call.